This is Vintage Broadcasting. The following is a study through the book of Philippians. My name is Frank Goss. I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come. I thank you very much. Okay, we're continuing in our study in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 27 and 28. Paul is sitting in prison as we've already read and studied. He's sitting there and he's tied to a Roman soldier. But he's letting the Philippians know that, look, this is turning out for a great benefit to the glory of God. And there's some excitement given, but there's some concerns on the side of the Philippians. How is Paul going to fare in all this? Well, he says, look, whatever happens, whatever goes on here, conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you're standing firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. That's a tremendous, tremendous position, isn't it? There's a privilege been given to serve Christ, to walk with him. And this privilege that we've been given implies a responsibility has been accepted. If you own a house, it's a privilege. With that ownership comes the responsibility to maintain that house. If you fail to take this responsibility seriously, the house will fall apart, fall into decay. The roof will leak, the pipes will burst, the carpet will deteriorate, the windows break, and so on. If you're a Christian, you have been called of God to be his heir, to be his child. This is a privilege, a great honor, and it comes with certain responsibilities and obligations that we cannot deny. Old things are to pass away. Old ways are to be put away. All things are to become new. We have obligations now. We have the responsibilities to fulfill as Christians. We're to pray, right? We're told to pray, to pray always. Do we do that? You know, I find that prayer is one of the most neglected commands in Scripture. We say we pray, but we give five minutes, maybe ten minutes to prayer. Oh, do we love the brethren? Are we enjoying fellowship with the children of God, with our fellow man in the church? Are we unified with one mind and one purpose? I will, I will assure you of this. If the fellowship is limited, how will you get one mind? You don't know the guy sitting next to you. You don't know what he's thinking, and he doesn't know what you're thinking. Paul saw all this, however, in the Philippians. He saw the maturity of these things being borne out, and he rejoiced with the joy that radiates all through the letter he wrote to the Philippians. The saints at Philippi were maturing, and they're growing in their understanding and their faith. Their conduct demonstrated these things. What they were doing, how they were conducting themselves, revealed the reality of their profession. When it comes down to the basics, your conduct represents the seriousness of your profession. If the love of Christ dwells in you, it'll be seen. If your devotion to Christ in obedience is true, it will be seen. Your conduct will reveal the attitude of your heart. And this doesn't allow for anyone to hold a judgmental attitude regarding your personal behavior. That's not what this is about at all. However, it is to say that your conduct should serve as an indication of the reality of your profession. There has never been a time in the history of, of the church when those who take the name of Christ live in identical fashion as the world around them. 
One man says he loves his wife and he loves God, and yet he cusses worse than any vile man I've met. The words that come out of his mouth towards his wife are disgraceful, and yet he says he's a Christian. Really? The high standards of the Christian life are established throughout Scripture, and to ignore them is inexcusable. This must never be. And the only way to avoid these type of things is to determine within your heart and mind to live a life of obedience to Christ and His Word. You're to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. You've been given this privilege, so fulfill the responsibilities. You're to live as a citizen of heaven. These are the particular words that Paul uses in verse 27. One word that he uses in the Greek is politoume, which means behave like a citizen. Avail yourself as pledged to some law of life. Then he says axio, also in the Greek. It's a suitable fashion. That means obey and behave like a citizen in a suitable fashion. That's befitting of the calling you've been given. If you're a citizen, live like it. Citizens contribute to the community. They help out. They don't sit by and watch. That's not a citizen. You say you're a Christian? Okay. Okay, well, let's pull out the standards and let's lay them down and look at them. And this is for you to do in your private time by yourself. Take out the standards that are laid out in Scripture and lay them by the standards that you live by, your behavior. Compare the two. How do you match up? Here are the standards of Scripture and here's how you behave. How do you match up? Let your behavior match those standards and where they don't, go before God and get them straightened out. Paul's thinking of the bride of Christ here. The bride of Christ is the church. Jesus Christ is going to have a wife. We're to behave ourselves in a particular manner as we live with one another within the confines of the church. We're to live for one another and respect one another and our contributions to each other and to the whole. We're to share a common life daily, not one day a week, but daily. How are your friends doing? Call them up and talk to them. Don't just wonder. We're to contribute to the common life of each individual within the church, the common life of the church. Look after one's well-being and the, the other members of the body. This is what is called a fellowship. There's always going to be problems when fellowship is broken. So often, we don't realize just how critical the fellowship of the church truly is as Christians. We think we can come and go as we please. We can come one time a month and miss the rest. It's a joke. Sheep are easily scattered. What happens is an independent attitude creeps in and raises its head, and the individual begins to exert his or her individuality above his concern for the others. When this happens, I can assure you fellowship is severed, and self-centeredness and, and individual isolation takes place. You begin to feel that your needs are not being met, that you're being ignored and overlooked, your voice is being heard, and your contributions don't matter. Well, when we ignore this fellowship, the personal fellowship, the face time with one another, when we can see and hear and enjoy one another personally, then we begin to lose our concern for one another. Having a Zoom meeting with my wife won't satisfy. That won't meet the need. The new technology that we have indeed is remarkable, and it gives us an ability to reach out to other people in ways that we haven't known before, but there is also a coldness and a deadness to it. It cannot and should not be allowed to replace personal contact. A few years ago, I was working in Kentucky while my wife and family were living in Indiana. 
my job had moved me here and I came to Kentucky and was working and waiting on the family to finish school so that they could come in the early summer months. We were separated by hundreds of miles and several hours. We talked quite a bit on the phone, but this wasn't bringing satisfaction to either of us. I love my wife, and she's extremely precious to me. I long for her fellowship, and I like being with my wife. She's my best friend. I wanted her company, far more than the companionship of the people that I work with. Marriages often have trouble when the long separation set in. Why? Because fellowship is broken. How? Well, out of sight, out of mind. It's an old adage, but it's accurate. We're not luminescent superior beings. We're not omniscient. I can't read her mind from so far away and look into her computer screen. I can see when she moves a certain way, when her hands act a certain way. I can see the stress and the way she's living. I can understand her when I see her. We're humans, and as human beings, we tend to think primarily of ourselves, if allowed to do so. We easily forget the blessings we have been given. We easily forget the fellowship that is ours, and we're prone to wander away. And yes, even Christians tend to do things like this. Paul is calling us back to the fellowship of believers, to the body of Christ. We're to live in a manner that pleases the Lord as citizens of heaven. We need to realize that we truly do need one another and the contributions that each of us can bring to the table. We're to live as members of the body of Christ. It's imperative that we live with one mind and for one purpose. We live a life that we have not earned. We have a hope that has been provided by God. We have what we have because of the King of Kings. He has provided these things for us. And each one of us as individuals are blessed by God. We share these blessings with one another. And we must understand how important this life in the church actually is. Now, Paul realized this, and he saw it, and it overjoyed him to see how the Philippians were maturing. Are we maturing in the same way? There's a unity in living that we have to recognize. If I'm a citizen of heaven, well, how am I supposed to live now as one? Well, Paul addresses this right here. He says, stand firm in one spirit. That's a unity. That's one mind. Now, we've been given unity. We have the unity in the person of Christ. He is our unity. But unity for a sheep is very fragile. We're told to maintain the unity in the, in the spirit in the bond of peace in Ephesians 4 verse 3. We're not bound through political affiliation or denominational ties, racial consideration, or cultural boundaries such as education or professional trades. Economics don't have anything to do with this. And if it does, then we have a serious problem. As a people... In an assembly, we have common goals, one goal, to please God. Too often, Christians seem to be determined to tear down other Christians who do not agree with them on every point, the most insignificant points. A lot of people laugh when you mention, well, churches split over the color of the carpet, but they have. How ridiculous it seems, but they have. And it goes even deeper than this. How do you train your child? You're supposed to do this or that. Well, that's not what I do. Why not? Well, that's not the way I see things. Well, why don't you see it that way? And all of a sudden, fellowship starts to be chipped away. Why do you wear what you wear? Well, that's what I like to wear. Why don't you cut your hair a different way? So on and so forth. We view issues like this. Insignificant things. Your personality rubs another person wrong, 
and you're declared to be obnoxious. So the attitudes creep in and the fellowship is getting destroyed if they're not dealt with. Opinions arise that are dishonoring to God, period. Self-righteous attitudes build walls of separation within the church. You are not the only one who is right. It's Christ. He is the one who is right. More often than not, we're wrong. Our attitudes often hinder the preaching of the gospel and the equipping of the saints. Disunity brings a lack of harmony within the church, and it helps destroy the focus and the goal. Do we have unity or don't we? We do have it. Are we maintaining it? Are we in agreement as a church or not? If there's no unity, then we got a problem. Unity is apparent. It's not a guessing game. Do we have it or don't we? It's apparent. It's visible and it's practical. It's a gift from God and we must seek to maintain it. To maintain it, we have to get aggressive. We have to be understanding that this is something that must be done. Another practical expression of true Christian conduct flows naturally out of the unity in the one mind that we have. If we conduct ourselves in a matter that nurtures unity, soon we'll discover that this leads us to work together in order to advance the gospel. Let's go share the Lord with so-and-so. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. The Philippians were standing on the frontier of the Roman world. They're standing in a decadent society that was run accordingly. The Romans worshipped idols and false gods. They were violent people. They were sexually immoral people. And the church lived in the midst of barbarism. So how do you advance the gospel in such a situation? Well, I can assure you this. You can't sit down and hide in silence, can you? It won't go anywhere, will it? You back up and you say, well, it's not safe. If we go out, our lives will be in danger. Tell that to Paul. Tell that to Paul. He was whipped several times, 39 lashes. And finally, he was beheaded. Tell that to Peter, who legend has, he was crucified upside down for sharing the gospel to a lost world. Tell that to Jesus Christ, who was crucified, yet he had not one sin. Tell that to a multitude of martyrs. Yeah, let's stay inside because it's dangerous if we go out and talk about Jesus. Yeah. We have to be aggressive and unafraid. I'm not saying be obnoxious and overambitious, but we have to be able to step out. Today, we're too afraid of offending somebody. If we mention Christ at work, we get reported. Why, we could get reprimanded or fired for hate speech. We could get censured and silenced. We don't want that. Not at any cost. We don't want to be ashamed. So what we do is we walk quietly. We don't want to walk or wander too far abroad, you know. We don't want to get away, away too far from the port. We want the gospel to go forth. We do, but we'll give all the money you need in order for you to go out and tell people all over the world about Jesus. But we're not going to leave our place of safety. No. We got a good job. We got good health. We got security and acceptability. We've got a good nest that we built. While there are multitudes of men and women who are lost, a sea of humanity, the muddled masses, who truly are without hope and they've never heard the gospel, and we're worried about who will win the national championship or what color of tie to wear to our next meeting. No, if the gospel is to get out to others, then you are to take it to them. You are. The Bible tells you to go unto all the world and preach the gospel. Yes, it does. You are to take the gospel to work with you to the courtroom, to the factory, to the marketplace. Now, I've heard it said that we're not to go to work preaching. 
And I would agree with that. I'm not hired to be the uh, chaplain of the place I work. But the reasoning behind such a statement is poorly thought out, in my opinion. My employer pays my salary so, so that I can do a particular job and do it well. That'll further his interest. Not, it's not mine to preach while I'm there. And I'm not saying we got to preach. I'm selling my employer my time for an agreed upon sum of money. That's true. And using the aforementioned reasoning, I'm not allowed to speak of Jesus. Okay? Then logically, I'm not allowed to speak of the football game we watched on Sunday. I'm not allowed to speak of the hurricane that hit in Florida, or politics, health issues, or any other subject. Why? Because my employer is paying my salary not to talk about these things, but to do my job. Is that extreme? I believe it is. This is the logical conclusion of such thinking, that I'm not allowed to share the gospel while I work because my, my boss didn't pay me to do that. That's poor reasoning, and it holds no practical application. We do fellowship with those around us. We walk and talk, small talk. We make friends. We have conversations. We're creating a fellowship at work, believe it or not. While I believe that we're not hired as a factory chaplain, we're not hired as automatons either. We speak with co-workers of the things that motivate and interest us. We can speak of Christ in personal conversation. Given the opportunity, we should. We have not sold our souls to the country store. My employer is do my services, and I am to render a good job. This bears witness to Christ, doesn't it? The way I work? Yes, it does. However, I'm not selling my mind and my soul. They are not mine to sell. I belong lock, stock, and barrel to Jesus Christ. These are the things that interest me. And when I speak, I'll speak of these things. Well, do you rush in wave in a Bible? No, I'm not saying that. Do you think that's wise? Is anybody in this podcast suggesting, even remotely, that you do something like that? No. No. We're to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. There's got to be some understanding. You speak when you're spoken to, right? You're given the opportunity, you can share the gospel. Paul's approach was to reason with others, to talk to them. And in speaking, he was able to reasonably address their questions and concerns. Many hear the word aggressive, and they picture themselves as muscling a man into the corner and forcing him to make a decision, heaven or hell, God or Satan. This is not at all what I'm speaking to. Aggression can be applied gently and slowly, but consistently and constantly. You stand for Christ, unmovable, reverently, in conversation and action. People will see Christ. You're standing against a fallen culture, against sin and evil. You're not going to participate in worldly activities like that. You're not going to be bar hopping with your buddies, nor are you going to encourage this. You're not going to be gossiping and spreading rumors. Your lifestyle stands in opposition to the lifestyle of those around you. This is aggressive. People see this as an aggression. Aggression against their standard of living. Your life convicts them because you don't participate in it. And sometimes that's like hollering at them. And believe it or not, it's infuriating and challenging to them. Do we see this today? Quite honestly, no. Churches throughout America are seeking numbers. They're seeking huge buildings. Big buildings require big budgets. And big budgets require a lot of people. And this requires a lot of numbers to pass through the door on a Sunday. To achieve these aims, they become accommodating, less aggressive, and most certainly less offensive. They pander to the public they're trying to reach. 
consulting agencies have popped up all over the nation offering their services to help small churches grow to be large churches. They give advice as to what to say and when to say it and what not to say. These outside firms develop marketing plans that create an appeal. Approaches are developed and called ministries that offer entertainment and create a vibrant atmosphere. Amazingly, comedians are finding a lucrative career within the megachurch market, helping people relax and laugh a bit, gestures in the pulpit. Gymnasiums are built, bowling alleys, restaurants, fast food chains are established within the church buildings. A large megachurch mega in California has dancing, drama, and contemporary singing. There are video games, theme park layouts, and even an indoor aquarium and a reptile display. Oh, and almost forgot, they, they have a sanctuary as well. It is, after all, a church, remember? Evangelicalism has become an industry unto itself. Denominations are competing for market share, not souls. They're building malls that offer about everything you can imagine. You can come on Sunday and stay all day. You bring the family. We have something for everyone. We have food variations in the food court. We have basketball in the gym, bowling activities. Uh, we, and, of course, we do have Bible studies that are offered in Section C. Guards are needed in the parking lot, and traffic control is getting to be a bit hectic because so many cars are coming in and going out. All of these things serve to indicate blessing, right? These things don't impress God at all. God looks at the heart. The gospel that's being put out today is far-reaching, but it's only one inch deep. It fascinates the shallow spirit of the modern man and the average Joe. And that's enough. Don't get too deep. Don't get too offensive. God's word, if preached properly and in the power of the Spirit, will, will go forth and do what it's supposed to do. But so many people are afraid to preach the truth. Why? They'll lose people. They'll be seen as radical. The budget will drop. We'll start to have financial problems. People will leave. God's work, done God's way, will never lack God's blessing. Men do not need to hear a concert. They don't need a, a court gesture standing in the pulpit. They need to hear the gospel. The cross, when it's preached, offends. And it appears that many are forgetting this. Some have remarked that in Louisville, Kentucky, there's a huge church on the side of the expressway. Huge, big church. They refer to it as Six Flags Over Jesus. It's attended by thousands of people. And has virtually everything you would need for the family. Oh, this is aggressive. It is, isn't it? It's an industry. And it's expanding. And seminary graduates are seeking ministry opportunities in these corporations. I spoke to a major administrator of a large denomination in Louisville, Kentucky, asking him how they were providing opportunities for young pastors who were graduating from their seminary. I told him about eastern Kentucky and the need in the Appalachian area, the most impoverished areas in the United States. I was not surprised by what he said, but I was saddened to hear it. And I'm quoting essentially what he said. Young men graduating today have no interest in those areas. There's not any money. There's very limited offerings within the community for family activities. There's poor educational opportunities that offer to offer for their children and the churches. Well, they're limited on what they can pay a truly educated, studied, successful seminary graduate. I live and minister in poverty-stricken eastern Kentucky. I live in the Appalachian Mountains. These people here, they don't need entertainment. 
They don't need fast food, venues, and bowling alleys. They need the gospel. And they need aggressive saints of God who are willing to work together to see that they hear it. They need people who aren't afraid to preach the truth. We need men who understand the message of God's truth. We need men who understand that the cross is offensive to most. It's foolish and stumbling block to many. And most of all, we need men who will walk with Jesus Christ and will go unto all the world to preach the gospel. We need a church that's unified on this message. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. These are the attitudes that guide the church and strengthen Christian conduct. These are the attitudes that we should definitely be unified in. for following along in our study on Philippians and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.